when Aleppo fallen to me, I felt like, okay, now what? You lost your family, you lost your battle, you lost your city, you are out there, everyone asking you to defend yourself because of your identity, you have a Syrian identity and everyone already pretending like you are a threat and you lost the city you belong to. For some reason, losing Aleppo made me feel like, yeah, this is reality. And as a feminist, I know that, yeah, sometimes th there is no equality, but that shouldn't stop you from fighting for it. So right now I feel like I will maybe live my whole life fighting the, the battle of the Syrian rights for freedom and dignity. What began as a local protest movement against a brutal dictator has morphed into an international proxy war that's drawn in Russia, Iran, the United States, nearly all of Syria's neighbors, and a host of militant groups. The scale of the crisis and destruction in Syria is mind-numbing. According to one United Nations official, the country is a slaughterhouse a complete meltdown of humanity, the apex of horror. Welcome to Into the Deep, the Global Voices podcast where we dig deep into one topic that isn't getting the media coverage it deserves. I'm Sahar, Managing Editor at Global Voices. I live right outside of San Francisco, California. And I'm Lauren, News Editor at Global Voices. I live in Bilbao, Spain. And today, we're digging deep into the resistance in Syria. The Syrian civil war, now in its sixth year, may be the most documented war in history, but to people outside the country, it may also be the most confusing. Millions of images, videos, blogs, tweets, and audio files about the war have been shared on social media. Some have been contextualized by news organizations, and some have been decontextualized by propaganda machines. So how do we wade through all the news and propaganda? When we want to truly understand what's going on in Syria, we at Global Voices always turn to Marcel Shavaro. Marcel Shavaro, I'm from Aleppo mainly. Aleppo is like a most amazing city in Syria. That's Marcel. Women like me don't exist anywhere in the imagination of people when they talk about Syria. I'm out of everyone's picture. They don't believe I do exist. I'm kind of Santa Claus. So I fall right now for the dignity of those who passed away and for the freedom of those who are still alive and fighting. I'm going to live and remember and tell. She's a 32-year-old blogger and activist She's currently in Gaziantep, Turkey, where she works for an organization helping Syrians back in Aleppo. I studied uh, dentistry, as most of the good, smart girls, they needed a doctor in the family, so they pushed me into dentistry. But I was smart enough to quit in 2009 to study political science, and I have MA in human rights. I joined the Syrian revolution from the beginning in 2011, and I've lived all all of it, I think. Marcel has been writing an evocative series for Global Voices since 2014 called Dispatches from Syria, where she describes her life in Aleppo and her eventual exile outside of Syria. 
In 2015, the series won an online journalism award. The judges praised her intensely personal writing for finding, quote, the gray areas in a war usually told from polar extremes. Marcel's dispatches, her stories would disturb the main narrative on several levels. The fact that she's a woman, the fact that she is from a minority in Syria, the fact that she's so outspoken, the fact that she's a feminist, all of these things. These things disturb the narrative, and disturbing the narrative, I feel, is one of the most important roles that storytelling can do. That's Joey Ayoub. Uh, hi, my name is Joey Ayoub. I'm originally from Lebanon. I'm one of the two MENA editors at Global Voices. Joey speaks six languages, French, English, and Arabic natively. He can get by in Italian and Spanish, and he's working on his Hebrew. I believe in social justice for everyone as something that should be unconditional. I joined Global Voices as a volunteer in 2012, and I became the editor last August, and I'm currently preparing a PhD soon in cultural studies. What does Aleppo mean to you? To me, this is a city with a soul, and I've been there all my life, all my adulthood. My first kiss, my first love, my first, first breakup, and my first protest, my first one I saw get shot at. I witnessed so many deaths. I lost so many friends. I have 200 martyr friends on my Facebook list. I lost my mother. I lived under barrel bombs. I have to flee snipers. I had to change so many houses for security reasons. Almost everything that I relate to is in there. For us right now in 2017, when we reflect on the Holocaust, for example, many of us who have read about it, and even those who have just passively heard about it, we would know names, the Anne Frank being a famous example. And these are things that would have disturbed the narrative of the Nazis at the time had the internet existed. Six years ago, when the Arab Spring was gaining momentum in Tunisia, Libya, and Egypt, a group of children sprayed, your turn doctor on a school's wall in the Syrian city Dara. Bashar al-Assad, Syria's dictator, happens to be an ophthalmologist. The day after the graffiti appeared, on February 16, 2011, the police started rounding up school children in Dara. The children were detained, interrogated, and tortured. Their families met with the chief of Dara's security forces, who happens to be Bashar al-Assad's cousin. Rumors started spreading like fire of how the cousin and his men were electrocuting and torturing the children in custody. Some accounts said Assad's cousin told the parents to forget about their sons and to consider having new children. As the news of the torture spread, small, unprecedented protests started erupting in Dara. And then, a 12-year-old was killed at a protest by security forces. The protests soon gained momentum across the country. By mid-March 2011, peaceful protests were happening in nearly every major Syrian city, and Bashar al-Assad's forces responded violently with live ammunition and mass arrests. Yes, there is Syrians who believe in democracy. Yes, there is Syrians who, fight, who are fighting for it, and but we are out of the everyone's picture. No one wants to see us. We should re-question our beliefs, how we see Muslims, how we see Middle Eastern, how we see all that area, because 
this shock that we are really still fighting for democracy, for our rights, is causing a lot of bias on coverage, a lot of bias on programming, and we are dealt with as a threat all the time. Yes, Syrian people want their freedom and dignity. They paid a huge price for it. The war has killed close to half a million people. Half of the country's 22 million population has been forced from their homes. The Syrian Center for Policy Research says a total of 11.5% of the entire Syrian population has either been wounded or killed. Given that we know so much, and given that there are facts that are just undeniably facts for anyone who actually bothers to look at them, to search for them, to Google it, so to speak, how did it get so bad? Or more importantly, why has the reaction of the world been largely indifference, if not outright hostility, toward even the name of Syrians? It has become something that the conservatives, for example, in the West use as derogatory. These are people who obviously have never met Syrians. But how did we get to the level where it has become almost okay to do that? I think people, when they hear Syria, unfortunately, tend to jump to the conclusion there is nothing we can do and end up with the results like, okay, it's too complicated. To me, we're never stuck with the details because now I'm in the details. Going back into some basics, no one should kill half million people and go away with it to rule a country again. And if it would happened early on in humanity history, it shouldn't be happening now. We should be ashamed that this is happening now. So I don't care how complicated it is because as a civilian and as an activist and as someone who used to be a huge believer and fighter for a better planet, I think that we are not on the right track. We are on the wrong track for Syria. Yes, it is complicated, but not doing anything is making it even more complicated. In 2011, we started with the peaceful protest, and no one did anything. So we ended up in the mid of 2012 having armed resistance, and it was moderate, and it was fighting for the rights of the people, and no one did anything. Then later on, the chemical weapon attack happened. They took the chemical weapon weapons from Bashar al-Assad, and they allow him to do everything else. Then we ended up with ISIS. Right now, we have Nusra Front. And it's not becoming a serial problem only. It's becoming the planet problem. And when I see how they are dealing even with anti-terrorism policies, this is a disaster. They are repeating the same exact mistakes that led from Al-Qaeda to ISIS. Baghdadi compared to Osama bin Laden, Osama bin Laden is a metal band singer compared to what we reached at this point. Joey, do you have anything to add on that? Everything has a context. I think this should be accepted as a fact by now. And the context of what's happening in Syria right now, including the rise of um, extremism, whether in the form of the most extreme, uh, such as Daesh, such, a, such as ISIS, or those that are just as extreme, I would argue, but in, have a more uh, pragmatic politic, like uh, Nusra Front, which is the Al-Qaeda branch in Syria. 
they came in a context. They were not there at the beginning for a good reason, because at the beginning people still had hope. And not only that, but many of the activists that started in the beginning have since either been exiled or killed or forcibly disappeared. We don't even have the numbers of how many people have been exiled or have been killed or have been forcibly disappeared. We have estimates. Recently, Amnesty International released a report saying 13,000 Syrians had been hanged in a military prison between 2011 and 2015. These people were activists, doctors, lawyers, fathers, husbands, and sons. What do you say to the person who knew nothing about Syria until 2015, maybe sitting in the U.S., who says, well, isn't it better for Syrians to be living under Bashar al-Assad than to be living under these Islamists? Come on, if he is living in the U.S., first I will have sympathy for him. So soon <laughs> enough he will know what does it have a crazy president. So we will be in the same pot again. Not as same, I don't think no one going to bomb them. I think many reach the point that let us shake hands with the devil. But this is how terrorism starts, shaking hands with the devil. We don't want to shake hands with the devil, we want to resist the devil. And yeah, I understand. I'm not angry if some people consider that Bashar al-Assad is a choice. Have you seen some people's fashion choices? People do crazy, stupid choices in life. but. If we are saying in 2017 that it's okay to kill people under torture, if it's okay to use rape as a tactic, it's okay to use chemical weapon attack, if we are okay with all of these packages, what's our problem with terrorism? Let people die, but not our people. So how much we differ from this ISIS propaganda? This is exactly what they are saying, exactly. So yeah, to me, I understand how it is complicated, but I don't know if we should have rehabilitated Hitler. I don't know if even if it's achievable. I don't know even if it's realistic. So, yeah, there is no easy exit from this situation. But Bashar al-Assad is not an exit at all. Not at all. Like not an easy one. Not a hard one. If you compare the amount of change that has happened in Syria before, from 2011 and in the first four decades before that, it's, there is no comparison. So in a sense, the change is permanent. I mean, Syria used to be called unofficially Mamlekat Sumt, like the kingdom of silence, because this was a place where any kind of uh, criticism of the Assad regime was not just frowned upon. It was something that can't get you into jail for several years, if not decades, as we know many activists who have, or worse, torture to death, for example. This is something that has, this has been the fate of many countless people. We really don't even have the numbers. Let's hit pause here. The human rights situation in Syria has been disastrous for decades. First under Bashar al-Assad's father, then under Bashar al-Assad. The country was under emergency rule from 1963 until 2011, and public gatherings of more than five people were banned. Security forces had sweeping powers of arrest and detention, and they used them. Human rights activists and critics of the government were often harassed, imprisoned, and tortured. So it's important to remember, 
Syrians are resisting something that has been going on for more than half a century. You, you reach a point to ask yourself, do we lost? And should we, is it black and doomed and we should quit? And you realize that it's not about winning and losing. It's not Real Madrid versus Barcelona. We wish it is that simple. No, it's a just cause, like fighting the battle of the Palestinians or the battle of the women's rights or the battle of discrimination over the world. Yeah, you won't wake up in the morning and find yourself in a justice world, but that doesn't stop you from fighting another day. And I'm scared that I'm not going to be able to go back into there. But even if I will spend my whole life saying daily in all the languages that I have to learn that we have a right in that country, we have a right to live with freedom and we have a dictatorship who invited every crazy person and every crazy fighter in the planet to fight us, we're going to fight another day for our freedom and dignity. If we talk about post-2011 Syria, it's the most documented conflict in the history of humanity by far, thanks to the internet. If we have enough technology and uh, information gathering tools, which we technically already have, we can more or less trace every single thing that has happened, that has been documented since the beginning of the revolution in 2011 up until this day. And just the amount of data that we would have is on a massive level. Millions of images, videos, blogs, tweets, and audio files about the war have been shared on social media. Some have been contextualized by news organizations, and some have been decontextualized by propaganda machines. We see heartbreaking tweets from a seven-year-old Syrian girl named Bana in besieged eastern Aleppo. And then we see our friends sharing an article telling us that Bana doesn't exist and is a propaganda tool created by the West. By the way, Bana does exist. Her videos were verified by comparing them to satellite imagery. And trusted activists and doctors working in eastern Aleppo also confirmed to The Guardian and The New York Times via Skype and WhatsApp that Bana and her mother are who they say they are. Since we, are, we seem to be living in this age of alternative facts in all of these terms that are being used now, quite a lot of the things that we, we are seeing now on social media are stories that people want to believe in in advance. So the stories of how everything in Syria is a conspiracy theory, how everything has been prearranged by someone in some room, pushed now and exaggerated and promoted by uh, Russian state media ever since Russia, I would say, invaded Syria. We've been on the defensive because of the massive uh, propaganda campaign. Just to give an example, the viral video of uh, Eva Bartlett a supposedly independent Canadian journalist. See, the video went viral of her talking about how no one in Aleppo had heard of the white helmets and how everything is a propaganda and how Bashar Assad's government and uh, Putin's government do not target hospitals. And I feel that like this was kind of the preview of what later on would be described as alternative facts. So many of us had to spend hours writing articles and posts and everything to debunk it point by point. Not because she made any point, not because there was any argument or there was any facts 
So, for example, the point that no one in, in Aleppo had heard of the white helmets, the lies of a massive scale, because obviously the white helmets are Syrians. Those are volunteers. Those are people that you can talk to. You can add them on Facebook. And many of them, I've, I've gotten to know them. These are just people doing their job as volunteers. They are doctors. They are you know, teachers. They are veterinarians or anything. After five, six years of Syrians actually writing in two languages, if not three languages, if you include Kurmanji Kurdish, of what's happening in Syria, that someone can, a white woman from Canada can come and say the most, the dumbest thing that you can hear and still be shared and still go viral this much, shows how much Syrian agency has been completely eradicated. I was seeing this Eva's video and to me, yep, that's funny, but later on it's why people believed Eva. Yeah. Why she didn't even, she visited Damascus once and that means a lot obviously, I don't know why. I have been into uh, like Paris airport and I know so much about France right now. I can be a France expert, but no one gonna believe me. Why people believed her? We, we, because there is, maybe because she's white, maybe because of her English, maybe because of the silly UN poster that is behind her. What does that make people believe her? We, after all, we shouldn't beat the, the population a lot because Come on, the Russian hacked the American election. Yep, they're going to pay money for propaganda. Of course they're going to do. They are paying a huge amount of money on aircrafts and weapons. And so they're going to invest in media. We are not the only one who reached the point to, to consider that media is important. Our enemy also believe reached that point. But if we don't do a huge deep revision to the UN system, who allowed this to happen in 2017, to the left, who allowed this to happen. We need to, a deep revision to the values that we, that we stood by because we are not going forward. ISIS is not only our only way of going backward. We are talking now about the Soviet Union again. We are going backward into women's rights, we are going backward into racism, like if we don't question how people believed this propaganda, why people find it so easy to believe this propaganda. So storytelling has always had this, it's kind of like a, a double-edged sword. What we have been trying to do at the Global Voices and hopefully we will continue to do so, is to emphasize the good side of it and to focus on the stories that are both true in terms of the facts and real in terms of the personal experiences. Given that we are talking to Marcel, I would urge everyone to read Marcel's dispatches from, from Aleppo and from Syria, which are available on our website. Because this is, I think, is really the perfect uh, combination of the two, of the brutal facts, the reality on the ground, and at the same time you get to see how she is viewing it from her personal perspective. I wanted to add in a simple comment, a small one hopefully. Uh, when you survive so much, uh, I was out in 2014, 
surviving almost everything. 20 security investigation, I was stopped by ISIS, I was stopped by Al-Nusra Front, I was arrested for refusing putting hijab. I, like, it was intense and I witnessed so many people dying or being kidnapped or being arrested. And you reach safety and suddenly all your all your memory go back. Suddenly it's like you remember. You remember like hell. You are safe now. You have too many time to remember and remember. And at the first year of this depression, I I was questioning why I survived all of this. And right now in the mid of 2016, I reached to the point, yeah, I, re I survived to remember to until. And I'm going to remember until. And this is how important storytelling, I think, to me to disturb the narrative. When the Syrian revolution started, this is when my relationship to Syria started. I feel responsible. I feel like if I have energy, it should be going toward that country. I'm totally in love with Syria. And even now, realizing that I may not return at all into there as long as this crazy dictator is ruling it. But to me, fighting the battle of freedom is Syria. Uh, our memory, our culture, our favorite author, our music, our handsome guys. And we do have many. <laughs> so, but this is to me Syria. I get this political question. Do you think Syria is going to be divided? Everyone is looking at us as like sectarians and who put them aside in three, four countries and they will survive. And I'm like, no, 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 there's a Syria. And there is a Syrians who are under barrel bonds and under chemical weapon attack. And when you say you're going to divide their country, they are shocked and say, no, we want it to be in Syria. So this is amazing. And I'm proud that I belong to that revolution. So many people doesn't get it, how you feel proud after all of this. So yeah, we were brave. We fought what for what we uh, believed in. And that is Syria for me now. So the change is permanent. The political implosion, in a good sense of Syria, has also been an explosion of art, of writing, of blogging, of podcasts, of all of these things that simply were not there in the same amount uh, before. So this and this is permanent. This is something. It's like an awakening. It's something that you just cannot go back to. It's impossible to go back to. You can repress it. You can suppress it. You can oppress. It, you can do whatever you want to postpone it but it just cannot die. It's not something that can be killed. And in addition to that, what is also tied to that is that people need to understand that the Assad regime in and of itself cannot last. It is not something, the, this whole structure of the Assad regime, it used to be an actual government. Now it cannot exist without the foreign powers who are in Syria. The Russian being a huge part of it, but Iran is also a gigantic part of it, and as Hezbollah as well. The countless uh, sectarian militias and proxies that have been deployed by Iran on, in Syria. So Bashar Assad cannot even hold his own territory, those that he calls in his own term liberated. He is not capable of keeping them at times for more than a few months. I don't know when I become an activist. 
I wish I will live all my life like this, even if it's hard, even if it's difficult. But I think in a political like chaos like we are living in right now, we need everyone's efforts. We need anyone who believes in women's rights to step up and speak up. We need anyone who believes in humanity to do something because if we don't do something, they're going to take us back in you know, some dark places and everyone's going to suffer from it. Right now, I don't know what is the future. And sometimes since the fall of Aleppo, to be frank, I feel I'm running just, I'm working all the day, non-stop, like for 12 hours, and just running ahead because maybe the future may come sooner. So I don't know what to predict. And I don't know what hope looks like right now. And and that's sad because I used to be full of hopes and dreams. I used to be like the person who have butterflies running around my head. And even though now um, I feel we lost this battle, I know it's a just battle and I will live my whole life and even I'm willing till now to die for it. That brings us to an end of this episode of Into the Deep. I do encourage you to visit our site and explore Marcel's dispatches from Syria. This is Sahar. And Lauren. This is a podcast of Global Voices, an international network of passionate people who keep tabs on the online conversations happening in their regions. Our 1,400 mostly volunteer writers, editors, and translators cover stories from 167 countries and translate them into more than 30 languages. Together, we've been building bridges of understanding, as we like to call them, through our digital reporting since 2005. Inspiring work of all of our Global Voices authors, translators, and editors made this episode possible. So big thank you to all of you out there. Don't forget, if you like what you hear, please share this episode with your friends on Facebook and Twitter. In this episode, we featured Creative Commons licensed music from the Free Music Archive, including The Telling and Parisa, both by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for coming along with us into the deep. We'll have a new episode for you soon. Until then.